welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, and sitting here, courtesy of modern technology, with my co-host Octavia Bright. So not actually sitting here, but kind of sitting here. Kind of. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing? Hi, Carrie. I'm okay. I'm looking at you as we do these days in this little tiny rectangle on my phone. You look lovely. (laughs) How long has it been now since we've seen each other? Six months? Since March. Longer. Since February. I miss you too. It's lovely to see you now. I'm doing okay. I'm like, you know, it's it's the evening. We're recording. It's dark outside already. I'm sad about that because I'm really feeling... I'm really feeling the approach of autumn and I'm trying to think about the things that I like about autumn, like wearing cozy jumpers and going for big stomps outside, wearing ankle boots. Ankle boots are a great thing in my life for half of the year, but then I'm reminded of the days getting shorter and I'm such a sun bunny. I just, ugh, it's a heaviness, you know? Yeah, I am also feeling quite apprehensive about this autumn. It's weird to have that back to school feeling well, we're just doing the same thing that we were doing before. I know. Just sitting in our houses. But like you, I, I'm trying to be positive. Um, you know, I love sweaters. I'm going to wear some when I have my Zoom meetings. I love the crisp air. I love making hearty stews, which, you know, we haven't been doing during the summer. So there, there are things that are nice. Yeah, they're great things. Reading Fires. by the fire. Exactly. Mm. Thick, cozy socks, fire, book, hot chocolate. I mean, I don't have a fireplace where I live, but <laughs> maybe I, I can start a fire. Have our fireplace, but that doesn't work, does it? It involves traveling. Yeah. I, could I yeah. walk to Oxford? That would be fun. You could cycle. No, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely terrible on a bicycle, but yeah, cool. I'll figure it out. Okay, great. Done. <laughs> uh, today, we are going to be talking about the building blocks of all books, words. See what, what you, do you think about copy. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is there so much delight in discovering a juicy new word? Which authors particularly love to use interesting words or to make up their own? Do you ever read the dictionary for fun? Is it annoying <laughs> when people use obscure words too often? I read the dictionary for kicks. I hold my hand. So many questions. (laughs) But joining us today is the author Ellie Williams, whose first novel, The Liar's Dictionary, is both about words and delights in them. It features Peter Wentzworth, a disgruntled employee of Swansby's new encyclopedic dictionary at the turn of the century who begins inserting his own invented words into the first edition. It is also about Mallory, an intern tasked with rooting out his insertions in the present day. Octavia, do you want to tell our readers a little bit more about Ellie? I do, but also rooting out his insertions sounds really dirty <laughs> to me. <laughs> and I just, I'm just stuck on that. <laughs> yeah, it does sound dirty. It's not so dirty in the novel, at least that. That's act. true. Yeah. But it's a but go with it. It's a dirty thought. That's that's the delight of words. Isn't that it? is the delight of words. And also, <laughs> I want to say for the record that I'm using the word "dirty" in the like sexy way, not in the shameful and um, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera way of which people use it to refer to sex. Anyway, Ellie Williams is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She's also the author of A Trib and Other Stories, which won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize was long listed for the Dylan Thomas Prize and won the Republic of Consciousness Prize and it's a book of short stories. Her work has appeared in the Penguin Book of the Contemporary British Short Story, Liberating the Canon, The Times Literary Supplement and London Review of Books. She lives in London and she reads the dictionary very, very well. I've watched her. Yeah, that sounds creepy. I mean, she did a, a an event where she read the dictionary, an online thing to promote her book, and it was wonderful. So today you'll hear our interview with Ellie in which we talk to her about The Liar's Dictionary. We'll talk more generally about the love of words in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So come get lost in our dictionary for the next hour of Literary Friction. Excellent. I like it. Ellie Williams, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from The Liar's Dictionary. Would you mind setting that up for us? 
Sure thing. Um, so this is a reading from the middle of the novel. Uh, I think everything you need to know contextually is that it's an episode in the 19th century um, and it's concentrating on one of the main characters, Peter Wintsworth, who's a, a lexicographer who has a number of uh, interesting personal flaws and routines and tics. Um, and for the purposes of of this reading, you should just know that he's at a party and he's not particularly feeling at ease. Wentzworth often had cause to remember a textbook from his school days, filled with grammar exercises and tables. One page required students to rank the following verbs according to their pace. Jaunt, stride, amble, lumber, strut, patrol, plod, prance, run, saunter, shamble, stroll, and traipse. Wentzworth swept by the band once more. He jaunted marchia moderato, he strode allegro, he ambled adagietto. He caught the eye of the waiter and signaled for another whiskey. Everyone was laughing and toasting, blurs of sleeves revealing bands of naked skin and teeth bared. He lumbered larghissimo, he strutted andantino, he patrolled moderato. There must have been 200 people in the room by now, they all seemed to be having quite a time of it. He plodded grave, he pranced vivadissimo. Perhaps the hope that he might trickle out through the door once a necessary hour of social grace had been observed remained a possibility. He decided to stand behind one particularly lush potted plant in order to evade the further attentions of the serving staff and crashing. Here he could count down the minutes in the relative safety of the potted plant's leaves. It was a huge plant, as tall as a lexicographer and with large flat drooping leaves. He did not want it to appear as if he was sidling. He had spent the day in the office defining this verb and was keenly aware that to sidle could convey a certain sinister intent if one happens to be observed. It pleased him that sidle, verb, could slide into slide, verb, the surreptitious becoming the graceful. It was just a question of bearing and perhaps the same reason that Frashen seemed to be more charismatic than he. Wintsworth thought a good trick to counter any accusations of sidling might, be, might involve bouncing slightly at the knees and keeping elbows close to the body. So it was that Wintsworth, now obsessed with the fact that he was one of humanity's natural sidlers, slid bouncingly into what he might, at his most fossorial, choose to call the potted plant's arboreal verdancy without disturbing a single leaf. He sidled straight into a young woman already hiding there. Great. It's amazing how you forget how to use words <laughs> uh, <laughs> pronounce half the things you've committed to paper. Well, what what I was going to say is I loved hearing you read that and I especially loved how that passage and this whole book just delights in words, which is befitting, of course, for a, a novel which is about dictionaries and, and lexography and lexographers. But I wanted to just ask you to start if you could talk about your own relationship with words and, and etymology. I cannot imagine this book being written by somebody who doesn't love and delight in words. <laughs> A masochist. <laughs> um, <laughs> Self-deluding. I mean, I always feel that I share uh, the love of words that, that all writers have, the kind of... Um, enjoyment of the the tricksiness and the misuse of words as much as as good use of them but i think i am in a way more interested in in miscommunication and the way that possibly demonstrated by that reading um one can feel confident with words until they fail you or one can feel informed and and able to uh, convince others that you're in control of of what you're saying until a sentence runs away with you until someone you're speaking to completely loses you uh, with a train of thought or with a kind of mishmash of images and metaphors. And I think there's playfulness there and, and a kind of horror <laughs> in the fact that we teach ourselves words, we kind of accrue without thinking about it, uh, an index, a personal kind of uh, lexicographical project and a vocabulary that we then either feel is not always under our control or it feels like we have to moderate it according to whom we, we talk so if i'm speaking to my my wife i'll use nonsense words and can get away with it 
if those slip into conversation while I'm teaching or if I'm being read the riot act or something like that, something that's completely inappropriate. And the idea that language then is uh, an identity marker is a way of kind of dressing the world as much as addressing the world. So I, I guess a short answer to your question is I'm, I'm interested in when languages and when language goes wrong as much as I'm interested in, in words and, and how they fit in to the day to day. Yeah, one of the things that I really loved about this book was it sort of shows how even within reference, the project of objectivity is always destined to to fail. Even a lexographer is always inserting so much of themselves in in their definitions. And in the book, you take this to an end of sorts in that you create this character, Winsworth, who is working on Swansby's dictionary at the turn of the century and just begins inserting his own made-up definitions into into the dictionary. And those are the things, the thing that connects Mallory and Winsworth is that Mallory has to find all of his fake definitions, if you will, and and root them out of the dictionary. And I wonder how that um, concept came to you. How did how did you come up with that? And also, in the book, they're called mount weasels, which I assumed was a real term, and then I googled it, and I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet. So I wonder if you were laying a little mischief in your own novel by inventing that term. Oh, well, um, I love the word mischief. That's one I, I try and um, inject into the, as a theme, uh, as, as much as a tone into as much work as possible. There is uh, the actual term mount weasel, which is given to copyright traps that exist in dictionaries and encyclopedias. And the reason it's such a curious and, and odd word is because mount weasel was one of these fake words that appeared in Columbia encyclopedia and um, one of the entries there a, a biographical entry was for one Lillian Virginia Mount Weasel um, and it's this little entry about this person's life as if they're a real person it says she's born in Bangs Ohio in I think 1933 uh, and she died while uh, on commission for combustibles magazine in an explosion and you can kind of see as I'm as I'm telling it this is a completely made up articles and completely made up story but you can tell that the lexicographer who made up this entry had real fun with the idea of creating this character it is a little potted fiction that they've inserted into the body of the text um, and she's an example of these copyright traps so um, most encyclopedias and dictionaries have these you may have heard them as trap streets when they appear in cartography so in maps um, and they're examples whereby if you, Octavia, and Carrie were writing a dictionary together, when you do, and I'm <laughs> writing one, it would be very easy for us to just copy each other's dictionaries because words are words are words. All the words uh, should be defined kind of in a similar way. However, if you insert into your dictionary a fake word and it turns out that it's in mine too, you'll be able to see that I've been copying you. So these little fake words, whether they're, they're nonsense words or whether they are misspellings, they're really peppered throughout reference works in order to kind of um, stave off acts of piracy. This is fascinating because I did Google Mount Weasels and couldn't find anything, but maybe I was just spelling it wrong. <laughs> it's like, I was like, wow, she's amazing. She made no. up this new term. I've always just really enjoyed the idea of, of someone who at least in a kind of intellectual capacity, we think of as, as what, preserving language with a dictionary, fixing language, registering language. There's a lot of responsibility there. There's a lot of sense of uh, editorial probity. That's very different, as you say, a mischievous, um, more surreptitious figure who is inserting fake words into that. Um, words that should never be looked up because they do not exist. So this notion of someone making up words, being creative with that act of, of making up a word, um, it seemed kind of at odds with the project of a dictionary and therefore quite beguiling uh, mm. and, and at odds with how I think of certain lexicographers like, say, Dr. Johnson, Noah Webster, where they are, at least in my mind, these kind of authoritarian and parochial 
male figures uh, kind yeah. of bestriding <laughs> uh, language and trying to make it their own rather than something more kind of democratic or, or uh, actively part of a, a communal effort, which is more a bit like Wikipedia, possibly, um, that feels a lot more healthy <laughs> and a bit more uh, in an ideal world, what language and language sharing could be like dynamic in that way, rather than a yeah. kind of monolithic uh, project or ambition. It also makes me think of, uh, I don't know if, if you've ever come across the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, so it's a, an online no. dictionary and it's uh, it lists various made up words and define and in, it uses those words and their definitions to define these different types of sorrows. Um, the Internet being what it is, it's often quoted out of context as if these are real words. <laughs> um, so one of them, I've just had a little look, uh, sonder noun, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. This, this idea that, well, of course, we've all had that thought and, of course, we need a word for it. Um, the fact that, I don't know about you, but my heart kind of leaps a little to think, yes, that's it. Now I finally have a word for that sensation, for that experience, um, for that emotion. Uh, it somehow makes me feel as if that uh, I'm not so alone, as if that's a shared experience. Yeah. And th why on earth do I need a word for that, to, to have that? sense of recognition to have that sense of community suddenly with an unknown other um uh, words have that capacity um to feel like we can start a conversation like we can share an experience and the fact that uh, as i say often the dictionary of obscure sorrows which is written by john koenig um it it appears stripped often as a source for these made-up creative definitions um, it just shows that there is this community uh, that we as readers and as writers and as thinkers and, and experiencers of emotion, uh, we crave terminology often. There is that instinct to want to put a word to something so that we can discuss it, so that we can, can find some fellowship through it. Um, mm -hmm. And that can be a trap as much as it can be a generous gift. Well, yeah, because sometimes the question is, you know, a feeling or a sensibility can be um, private and amorphous mm -hmm. and then suddenly it belongs to a fixed idea that doesn't quite match but it matches enough to drag your your sense into the wider pool of this particular word or and it you know which can be on the one hand liberating but I think one of the things I felt exploring in Mallory's character is that she has a resistance to some of those terms because they mean something very private to her and she doesn't want to relinquish them necessarily to the kind of muddier water of society and everything that comes with with all of that but also the thing I was really pleased when there's a, a mention of urbandictionary.com <laughs> because <laughs> not a sponsor <laughs> not a sponsor no but because one of the the roles that Mallory or well, Mallory's job as at the intern in this dictionary is to digitize the dictionary so in your narrative structure you you have this idea of you know the difference between an online dictionary and a dictionary that exists in paper, um, which feels like also another much more monolithic object, doesn't it? Because you can't argue with it. There's no like comments section on a dictionary or an encyclopedia. But then I, I wanted to ask you about how you feel as a writer and a reader and a teacher of words um, about this, the switch to kind of online, the online community of word making and meaning because Urban Dictionary is, for anyone who's not familiar with it, um, a dictionary mainly of uh, kind of slang and swear words and sex words as far as I use it anyway <laughs> but it's a much more in motion malleable changeable space right than like the Oxford English Dictionary and it's one that people can comment and it's more like Wikipedia I suppose and I wonder like do, does that word spaces like that excite you or like how do you feel about them? They definitely do and I think as you say with Urban Dictionary my first stumbling across it is in the same way that you kind of look out uh, gross out comedies or something like that. You think you, you read the definition and then think, goodness me, what a rich tapestry of life. I never thought you could do that with that in that way. Um, <laughs> and uh, rather than being like, oh, I, I need to 
rigorously look through this whole dictionary so that I can feel like if anyone ever asks me to do that, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, sure, I know what that means. It is more as a kind of humorous repository. I had to be careful when you said repository, not suppository, for, um, <laughs> for language and, the, and, and kind of the extremes and humor and absurdity of, of language and terminology and slang. And I think that that is a kind of hotching and um, active way of thinking about language and, and slang in particular, that I think it also is, maybe I'm wrong, it's strangely timeless as well. Um, so while with a dictionary um, or an encyclopedia that, say, was published in the 19th century where it has got a definition of malaria that clearly was written at a time when they didn't know that it would, the, the kind of locus for the disease was via um, mosquitoes, that, that's not going to be part of the definition. And so you know that that's of its time. It's, it's hampered by ignorance of later scientific progress or, or different metrics. Um, while with Wikipedia and with Urban Dictionary, although you could look at the editing history of it, you do know that it's being kept up to date with with the use of words and for the variety of different meanings that something can have. I think it's thrilling. I also think that I definitely use online dictionaries and resources on Wikipedia more than I use encyclopedias or dictionaries, both because of ease of access and just because often they are built into uh, the devices that I'm using. So if I'm reading a novel and I'm not sure what a word means, I can literally just tap the word and up will come its definition. Um, yeah, that was actually the one of the things I wanted to ask you about in terms of writing this book, because this is a book that has a lot of words, wonderful words and definitions in them. And in the preface, um, the author of the preface, which I will not call you, um, talks about the pleasure of actually reading the dictionary. And I couldn't help but wonder, says Carrie Bradshaw, um, <laughs> uh, what that process was like for you. Did you have to look up a lot of words to write this book? Were you using actual dictionaries? Were you reading the dictionary? Were you just looking online? How, how did you find all these wonderful words? Or are they just there in your head? And if so, I am so interested in how your brain works because... <laughs> <laughs> or doesn't work. <laughs> there are so many amazing words in this book. I think uh, uh, probably the ones that are of any interest, it was a case of now I'm going to trawl through this dictionary and find the most precocious word <laughs> that I can and sling in there. Um, because often, you know, we do read dictionaries. Sometimes you'll, you'll be checking a word to make sure that you're using the, the correct uh, definition. And then your eye will just be caught on something a couple of columns over. And then this this rabbit hole of of just enjoying a dictionary and enjoying the fact that those words are out there that we're never going to have an opportunity to use. And, and there's something about that enjoyment and that relishing of language for language's sake sometimes that I that I find very appealing. Definitely the vocabulary of, of the preface in particular is meant to be arch and precocious and um, overly verbose because I think I wanted to look at this idea of language being something too rich, that it, it can be a kind of miasma that you can get lost in as much as it can be something useful for, for stepping stones of communication. And I, I think that, that I'm kind of at peace with, with feeling um, freaked out by, by words that I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing correctly or uh, pronouncing even that uh, and kind of using incorrectly or, or precociously um, as long as I admit that precaution or the absurdity of, of feeling like I could ever be in charge or in control of the language that I'm using. Definitely and the world of the book is so inclusive even though it's dealing in terrain that people have weaponized in the past right like the gatekeepers of language and like you say you know, it, it's very easy when using any language, whether it's your first or, or another, 
to worry about pronunciation or getting the meaning right. And there's so much linguistic or lexical snobbery in the mm. world. Um, and, you know, the, a book like this, it could have quite easily strayed into that territory. And one of the great joys I found in it is that it doesn't. It, 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 because it questions itself at every turn and your characters, as you say, their relationship to the words that they're using is... They, they're poking fun at themselves and I mean there's actually there's a moment where you um or the 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 narrative voice discusses how David Swansby the dictionary boss I guess I want to <laughs> say like the head lexicographer pronounces a word um and there's this quote I'm just going to read because it made us both laugh people who work with words like to do this pronounce them with admiring flourishes as if a connoisseur and to show that here is someone who knew the value of a good word the terroir of its etymology and the rarity of its vintage and I've met so many people like that, especially when I was hanging out in academia. And mm. uh, it really tickles me <laughs> to see that prodded. But, you know, do you do you find you come across people who who do that, too, in the world of words? Definitely. And I'm, I'm sure I do it, too, that there's so much posturing through, be it jargon or through even grammar. I mean, just using the clause, be it, <laughs> I didn't really use the word clause. I probably used it incorrectly, that I, I also learnt a lot through people that postured through language, that it, it made me interrogate the way that I uh, encountered concepts or um, arguments, but that it is a stance that's being taken, it's a performance often, and it, it can be a thrilling performance or a charged one, but it can also be quite flimsy once uh, looked at a bit, a bit more closely or scrutinized. Um, and that's okay, <laughs> but it's also highly irritating, <laughs> and, um, especially if people use it to try and uh, convince the person they're speaking to or the audience as they see it uh, of their power or of yeah. their might. And where words are these kind of either scattershot or cluster bombs that they can just, all kind of peacock feathers, honestly, that they can just fan out. And, and bewilder people as if that is communication rather than a kind of standoff. We've been talking a lot about words and dictionaries, um, and I think just because it's such a fascinating element of this book, but what makes this novel work is the, the humans in it, um, speaking of humanity. And um, we have this dual narrative of, of Mallory and Winsworth, who are these two characters that you you completely bring to life. But also what I loved is that both narratives are in their own way love stories. And I wonder if you were thinking about that as something that you wanted to be at the center of of both of their stories. I mean, they're unconventional love stories, I suppose. But you have this great definition by Samuel Johnson at the very beginning of the novel that his definition of a novel was a small tale generally of love. And I that made me think that maybe you were thinking about love while you were writing these two dual narratives. Yeah, um, in part because I think that, and it, it's not profound, I'm definitely not the first person to, to do it, but that love often feels like it falls short as a word for the, for the experience of it. So um, falling in love, being in love, having a crush on someone, falling out of love, um, feeling like love has petered out in some way, those often are embodied sensations rather than ones that necessarily have words that feel like they ever quite fit or feel like they ever could encompass or define or register um, those feelings. Um, and so it felt for me having these two characters that, as you say, in various ways are, are uh, embroiled um, in different stages of love and, and being loving and being beloved um, the idea that they're having to wrangle and, and potter about with words and yet have this difficulty in announcing their love for someone or for defining their love for, for anything um, was key to the novel. And as you say, the two characters, they're not in symmetry with one another and their narratives and, and the love stories that um, kind of school around them or out of them um, are not mirrors of one another, but I did want them both to have love um, kind of as the motivating factor for, for their storylines um, and for the thing that, that makes their worlds worth living, honestly, um, for, for the most part. 
Do you have a favourite word, Ellie? For a long time, um, pamphlet was my <laughs> favourite word, um, just because it felt weirdly onomatopoeic. Like that if you were yeah. going to shake a pamphlet at someone, it, it might make that sound. Um, and I mean, just connected with what we were just saying, that, that love always feels like the worst onomatopoeic word. It feels like a kind of a shove or something like that. It doesn't feel <laughs> encompassing or comforting or, or desperate. Um, it feels like a bit of a letdown as a word. You can think of all words as onomatopoeia. But no, pamphlet is up there. Um, do you have favourite words? I mean, I love the French word pomplemousse. Mm. I love That's it. Good. It brings me such joy. I also love the flavor grapefruit, which is what it means. But it's just, <laughs> I just find it this like, it's such a frilly word, you know, like I imagine it like a very frilly dress in a kind of overly tended garden. And it happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's never going to be a kind of a bitter, um, shriveled no. <laughs> experience of a word. Dower. No, yeah. exactly. What about you? And grapefruit. Carrie, grapefruit is such a disappointment as a word. So, like, well, know, we have a fruit yeah. for grapes. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Try a little hard. Try Sorry, Carrie. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have a favorite word, but I was so excited when I discovered the word calipigeon in college, which means having well-shaped or beautiful buttocks. It's just great that that exists Perfect. as a word. It's it's wonderful, and I think it is onomatopoeic. Anna, how do you even pronounce that? I don't know why I brought it in. What a onomatopoeia! But actually, you've you've made me feel really secure about not knowing how to pronounce things, Ellie. This is very good. That's all. That was the whole meaning behind this. It's just to allow myself to get away with relaxing into my complete ineptitude. Yeah. I, so what, what was that word again? It's wonderful. It's calipigian, spelled C-A-L-L-I-P-Y-G-I-A-N. Marvellous. It is an extraordinary word. And it's one that I, when I learned it, it's, you know, that experience you were describing earlier when you, you read a word and it makes you feel comfortable or like you're sharing an experience because I've always had a very peachy bottom and growing up in the 90s <laughs> when peachy bottoms were not in fashion <laughs> it was this kind of like alienating experience and then I learned the word in art history describing the kind of Rubenesque figures of Rubens paintings as we call them now Rubenesque and it was this a amazing moment of like there is a word for my <laughs> the part of my body that like I love but that is at odds with fashion okay I'm gonna take it I love it That's Octavia wonderful. I wasn't gonna be as revealing but that is almost word for word my exact story oh. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding you bottom forever no I'm not kidding I learned it in art history oh, amazing. and you know that I have a peachy bottom I do yeah and it makes you feel good about your peachy bottom and pe peachy bottoms are the absolute best um <laughs> yeah. but that, you know what pomplemousse bottoms I think oh, that's, bottoms. that's the ultimate <laughs> That is. I also, though, you know what's hilarious is I have been pronouncing it very differently in my head all these years. I had to look up how to pronounce it. So I've um, been pronouncing it Kalipkian. Oh, no, that's not right. I don't <laughs> that's a very different type of bottom. <laughs> that's like an elliptical bottom. But it's I support your pronunciation of that, should you wish to say it. Thanks, everyone. Okay. <laughs> um, Ellie Williams, it has been a total pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is dedicated to words, which we love. We do love Octavia, words. Octavia, are you a words person? I love words. I do. I am a words person. I guess, I mean, we're all word people, I suppose, but I studied languages at university and though I discovered I'm not actually a natural linguist because grammar, rules and regulations are not my favorite. I'm a lover of words and I got really into learning vocab lists and they became this like fascinating architecture of my uh, expressing myself in these other languages that I was learning and the way that they would be grouped around certain experiences or kind of a hierarchy of what it was necessary to express but also how you can be 
so creative when you're learning another language in which words you capture and which words you pay attention to and which words you lose. And it, it teaches you a lot about your own psychology actually as well, if you're paying attention. <laughs> so yeah, I, I found myself with a really big vocabulary in French and Spanish, but only really able to express myself properly in the present tense, <laughs> <laughs> which meant that like speaking languages is that's incredibly possible because you can you can jumble words together to make your meaning come across even if you're speaking only in the present tense people can kind of give you the space to understand what you're trying to say but obviously if you're trying to write things down the relationship to those words and the structure of the words and what kind of a meaning is being created by that structure needs to be much more precise and specific right but anyway yes I love words I love finding ways to express all parts of life in language, whether that's like trying to figure out how to explain my inner life or how to make sense of the world around me to myself even. Um, and I love learning about how other languages express ideas too and through etymology, how they evolve and how they live through and alongside one another. And actually, when you look at language, we're so much less isolated than we like to think by national borders. And anyway, yes, I do. I like words. <laughs> what about you? Yes, I also like words, um, <laughs> as you may have guessed from my job and also this podcast. I don't think I'm the type that reads the dictionary for fun. When I was trying to learn other languages, I was actually kind of the opposite of you. I I can't I do not have a head for remembering vocab, but I can remember grammatical rules much more easily. I mean, now I can remember nothing. But you know, I think I have a relatively large vocabulary for someone who reads all the time, but really should have a larger one. You know, I forget words all the time. I forget their meanings. I forget how they're pronounced. It's just not the way my brain works. Oh, I'm also a terrible speller. That's the other thing. But one of the reasons I, I really liked reading Ellie's book was just, you know, reading about new words and that thing she talks about, about finding the exact right word for something that you felt before that you didn't know had a, a specific word attached to it. Speaking of the delight of finding the perfect word for something you felt, it's so delightful when you discover that another language either has a word for something that just doesn't exist in English um, or has an idiom that is expressed in a completely different way. And I was thinking, I love uh, following Adam Sharp on Twitter. I think he's Adam C. Sharp, who tweets lists of idioms in different languages and their translations into English. So the, this is just an example, but he had a whole list of different idioms for the equivalent of a jack of all trades. And in Lithuanian, it's Barbie nine jobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, things like that are just so fun. And I also love etymology, as you say. I mean, it's so fun to just even look at the OED online and see where where words have come from and See, all of the go. varied you do read the dictionary for fun <laughs> you do no but I don't like open it up and like look through the d's you know oh girl you would be looking through the d's <laughs> <laughs> big d search energy that's right um, but it is one of the reasons I always wish that I studied Latin because I feel like I would have been kind of good at it because I was pretty good at grammar. And I feel like people who studied Latin have such a grasp of romance languages today, the way that they live and the way they were formed. And it's just, it's this part of language that I've always felt a little bit cut off from. And I, I wish I knew more about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so, so interesting. And it's, it is the bedrock for so much of the meaning that we make now in ways that, you know, like I was saying before, like they kind of close the gaps between languages, at least in groups, right? Like you said, romance languages. There's so much more simpatico than you might imagine. Yeah, very much so. I know we talked a little bit about our favorite words with Ellie, but do you have any other favorite words? I, I love hearing this from people. Well, I kind of feel... Um, I'm very fickle with language. And also I really worry that if I pick one word, all the other words would feel left out. But I really enjoy saying the word darling. <laughs> darling is a great word. I find it so warm and musical and I love what it means. I love saying it. I love being called darling. I don't find it patronizing or, you know, I know some people really hate terms of endearment, but there's something about them that I love. I will I will enjoy being called darling by anyone from my beloved to like a random person. It's just a word 
it makes me feel great. You do say darling a lot and it makes me feel great when you call me darling. And also that it's, it's so British. It is very British. It's one, one of the more <laughs> British things you've ever said. But I agree. It's a lovely, it's a lovely word. I loved when people called me darling when I moved here. Yeah, it's a great word. It's a really, really great word. And actually thinking about it, I love the words, the equivalent words in other languages as well. Like I love, I love in Spanish and in French when people use the, those kinds of terms of endearment. Chérie is a great word. Mm. I love it. it Nena in yeah. Spanish. Like, yeah, they're great words. So basically, darling. I love oh, the word. Well, that's darling. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Um, well, this is not my favorite word, but while doing research for this show, I came across a very delightful Guardian article about authors' favorite words, which I would really recommend reading. It is called from plitter to drabble tale the words we love oh i see yes do you see where i'm going i here? do which is i learned that plitter which is almost my last name which is a very weird last name has a meaning in orkney which in this article is described by aminata forna and it means to play about in water to make a watery mess which oh. if you know me i love making a water no, but I love I love swimming and I love water. <laughs> you do love swimming and you do love water. It's true. <laughs> so I was I was excited about that and nobody can ever know all the words. There's infinite words to be discovered and that's so exciting, isn't it? Yeah. It's also I think there is something really exciting when you feel like a connection to the word because of your name, for example, like Plitter is always going to feel like it's a little bit yours because your name is Plit or that it like mm -hmm. adds another meaning to like, you know, we create these kind of constellations of relation and meaning using language. Like I've always felt a bit possessive over the number eight because my name Octavia, Octave, Octave means eight. I don't know. I think like, like you said, because language is so vast and impossible to master, there are little moments where we find a mastery of a tiny space within it, within that ecosystem, right? Like a single word or a phrase. And it feels really exciting. Definitely. When I was thinking about words in literature, obviously all authors have to love words. I, I, I don't think they would be writers if they didn't love words, but it does seem to me like there are certain authors that love words more or maybe enjoy using more evocative or obscure words. Do you think that's true? Definitely. I think there are some authors who really revel in language as kind of flourish and adornment and its richness. Whereas I think there are others who are using it much more as a tool to craft a story. And both skills are a skill with language, right? Like it's just different skills. Someone is creating a rich tapestry and someone else is like honing this tool and making it incredibly efficient. Like I was thinking, actually Deborah Levy is an, an author who's not using it necessarily in the honed sense in terms of plot, but she is a an author who does not use florid language at all. The way she uses language is so precise and stripped back and clever and careful because she delights in language, right? So like, I think it's easy to think that a, a writer who delights in language is going to be someone like Virginia Woolf or someone who we might think of as using a more kind of uh, extensive vocabulary maybe or a more unusual vocabulary. And that's not always the case either. It's just like how a writer uses the toolkit that they uh, that's their profession, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's interesting, the writers who immediately sprung to mind when I was thinking about this were all white men who have the stink of pretension around their work Hate or at least stink. around the devotees of their work like David Foster Wallace for instance had a huge vocabulary and used it in his book and I remember reading Infinite Jest and having to look up words all the time or James Joyce for instance I mean made up a lot of words of course especially in Finnegan's Wake but used a lot of big words that a reader wouldn't necessarily know the meaning of. And I think there's a way to be really inclusive, but there is also a way to really exclude readers who are just turned off by not understanding enough to be able to read the book in a satisfying way. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. I think you have to, well, with Joyce, I've always found myself able to just let myself coast 
and trust that the meaning will become clear through context or through rhythm or, you know, he's doing so many other things. He's, when I read his work, it's less, I worry less about precision, right? Whereas I think with some of those con- more contemporary big men, big dude writers, it can feel a bit like a dick swinging contest, you know? And I don't yeah. want to take away from David Foster Wallace's talent because he was an extraordinarily talented writer, but it, that I've definitely had moments in his writing, especially in Infinite Jest, where I was like, really? Yeah. Is that it's the a little one show for off here? You. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Joyce, I think you're right. Joyce is trying to do something with rhythm and sound as much as he is with the words themselves. I, I think Nabokov was maybe that kind of writer as well I mean he was intensely interested in words and expression and he had a huge toolkit that he drew from when he was writing but it it feels deliberate and not just um flashy yeah flashy you know and I do think delight and curiosity go a long way that was how I felt reading Ellie's book was I didn't always know the meaning of the words she was using but as she was talking about she distrusts language and distrusts words and and that came through like her sort of willingness to question the use of words and the ability to understand them and the ability for a writer to make the reader understand what they mean using word, even if it's incredibly specific. I think that's that slippage is so interesting. And it was one that she was exploiting and playing with and, and being mischievous when she wrote that novel. Definitely. And being tentative sometimes through her character's use of language, which is the thing that I think we both react against in that more kind of um, monolithic authoritarian feeling use of language that male authors can often fall into, right? Where there's a a total, it's a, a kind of a totalitarianism that c- it can feel. That's how it can feel. And you yeah. don't, no one wants to read a book that's making them feel like an idiot. Whereas, you know, there's a great pleasure in reading a book that draws you deeper into language and like stretches your intellectual capacity and encourages you to take on new knowledge. That's like a wonderful feeling as a reader, but it's a horrible feeling as a reader if you feel like the writer is like slapping you around the face with your own linguistic ignorance. (laughs) That's not what I'm looking for when I'm reading. No, I don't like to be slapped. (laughs) So speaking of Joyce, what about authors that make up their own words. Because again, when I was researching the show, I mean, it's so fascinating. I Maybe I should read one of those nonfiction, like fun word history books. You know, so much of the vocabulary we use today was invented by writers. It's very exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Super exciting. What were you thinking yeah. of in particular? Oh, well, so I mean, just from some cursory research. Well, first of all, I should say that there is a a book called Authorisms, Words Wrought by Writers by Paul Dixon, which um, was extracted in The Guardian, I think, and where a lot of these examples come from. But so here are just a few examples. Shakespeare invented bandit, critic, lackluster. Very good. Amazing. Coleridge, who comes up in the Liars Dictionary, some neologisms of his were bisexual, soulmate, very interesting. Two excellent um, words. Yeah. Dr. Seuss came up with the word nerd. Did he? Yes. I did not know that. According to Paul Dixon. I mean, George Eliot came up with chintzy. Interesting. It shows how alive language is. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you get into kind of sci-fi and fantasy worlds, which are so rich with their own languages. Like, I was thinking of Douglas Adams in his book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is kind of comedy sci-fi, I guess. Um, And there's this thing in it called the Babelfish, which is this small yellow fish you put in your ear, and then any language you hear will be translated into your first language, which is just this, like, glorious idea. Imagine if that were possible. I love that. But Yeah. yeah, so many, so many writers in that yeah. world when they're world building and creating like closed closed systems you know having it their own language is such a key part of that yeah and i am not a lover of tolkien but i think it's amazing that he wrote his own languages he invented Elvish, his own right? languages yeah. yeah so what is your recommended book about words octavia well i'm going to come in with a lover's discourse fragments by roland Barthes, which is translated from the french Fragment d'un discours amoureux. And the translation that I know best is by Richard Howard, which is the vintage classic edition. Um, And it's such a gorgeous book. And it's a gorgeous book to read in translation or to read in French, or if you can get hold of both and and do a a parallel text experience. It is 
even better. And it's a dictionary of the lover's work. So it's a list of fragments, some taken from literature, some about himself from his own philosophy. And he calls them figures or gestures of the lover. And it's this beautiful exploration of what a language of love actually looks like and feels like and what it comprises and how it includes emotions and states, but it also includes movements, metaphysics, words, tropes, ideas, quotes taken from literature and how it's a language that we learn fundamentally really from literature as much as a language that we learn from experience. So it's very, very like words and the structures of languages are inherent to all of the ideas he's discussing, but it's also Mm. this kind of physical, metaphysical, glorious thing. I'm waving my hands around a lot. I'm very excited by it. (laughs) I've never read any Bart and I always feel like he's one of the critical theorists that I would actually like. He is gorgeous. Yeah. And it's actually Lover's Discourse is a great entry level Bart because it's so, it's doing exactly what we've both been talking about. What we love is when someone describes an experience that you've had in words and it clicks and it makes you feel less alone and it makes you feel excited by it. That's my experience of reading that book. Oh, lovely. Maybe I'll try it. Yeah. Maybe I'll get it for you for Valentine's Day. Oh, darling. (laughs) Darling. (laughs) What's yours? Um, I'm going to recommend A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, which was later, of course, turned into a film directed by Stanley Kubrick, which is the best example I can think of of what we were talking about, a book that invents a totally new slang and then just thrusts the reader into its world with no real introduction or explanation. And you kind of have to figure it out as you're going along. Nadsat is the language he invents. It's heavily influenced by Russian um, and it has all these wonderful words like droog and horror show. And Burgess is skilled enough that as you read you begin to infer what all of these words mean and you sort of slowly build this portrait of the dystopia and the words themselves become an essential part of understanding this world of ultraviolence that that we find ourselves in. And it's an incredibly immersive experience. And I was so interested to read that he claimed that he wrote this book in three weeks, which seems crazy. To not only write a book in three weeks, but invent an entirely new slang language. language. I wonder if he, I wonder if this language, (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if this language had been living in his brain for much longer, or if the, if the whole thing was just a three week genesis, like a crazy fever dream. It must have already been in his brain. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I need to do more research about this. Yeah. Interesting. It's a phenomenal book. I agree. Yeah. Excellent. Good choice. Thanks. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with both Octavia Bright and Ellie Williams to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. My recommendation is a book called Blueberries by Elena Savage, who's an Australian writer and academic. And I picked up a copy of this book when I was in Sydney just before COVID hit. So I feel like it's always going to remind me of that pre-pandemic parallel universe and remembering it to tell you about it now kind of takes me into this other hinterland. But anyway, I'd heard about it on the grapevine and I wanted to track down a copy. Um, and I don't know if it's published over here actually at the, at the moment, but I hope it will be because it's absolutely bloody brilliant. The subtitle is What Kind of Body Makes a Memoir, which outlines the terrain, but it's a really, really hard book to classify, which is very much my jam. I love books that don't fit into classifications. So I guess it's probably closest to a collection of essays. Um, But some of them really play with form, break down into more poetry. They play with double columns and narratives that interact with one another and disagree with one another on the page, which is a very exciting experience as a reader. Um, And it's incredibly playful with these things when it comes to describing how stories are told and how stories are constructed so it uses the page in a way that you know you often don't see in prose writing basically so I guess experimental nonfiction um kind of covers covers the 
the scope, but it starts with Savage going back to Portugal to look at the paperwork concerning a sexual assault that she survived there when she lived there 11 years previously when she was in her early 20s. And in the opening essay, she lays out her authorial voice, plus these other two internal voices which doubt and question every statement. So from the outset, she builds in the inner critics that we all live with or live alongside, you know, in our internal worlds. In, and she builds them into how she constructs pieces of writing about herself. So she's building a doubter into her own memoir. And so in that sense, the memoir pieces are kind of anti-memoir because they draw attention to the cracks that are inherent in any kind of autobiography, any kind of narrative construction. And from there, the pieces unfurl and they loop back around themes like gender and bodily experience, but also there's true crime in there and there's a lot about love and self-knowledge and sexuality. And it, I don't know, it's it's brilliant. It's very hard to describe and it's absolutely brilliant. And I think she's a writer that is is going to carry on doing really exciting things. That sounds amazing and totally unclassifiable. Yeah, like 100% my bag. It's basically like... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a very new book. Yeah, it, it really is. But though. I think you would also love it. Yeah, I do you know, I think I got sent a copy or a, a proof or something. So I, I will read it. Dig it out. Ellie, could we have your book recommendation, please? Sure. Um, and I think you might also enjoy this one uh, if you enjoy uh, books that are difficult to define or that kind of keep definition uh, at arm's length. So I've got um, Tanya Hirschman's And What If We Were All Allowed to Disappear? Um, it's a very short book, and it's just come out uh, this year from Guillemot Press. Short but very beautiful book. Um, and not only beautiful on the outside with a kind of a, a gold foil cover, but also on the inside, some of the pages are on tracing paper um, so that you're able to read what's on the facing page and then discover um, that half of that is missing on the next page and yet has this new context for it. Um, and it's a book, I won't say too much about what it's about because some part of the joy is, as I say, excavation and uh, mimicry and the experience of turning a page and how the momentum of that as a reader informs a narrative on the page. Um, but Tanya Hirschman, you may know as, as a poet and short story writer. In this book, she's bringing together both narrative and also these beautiful lyrical flourishes um, and her background as a scientist uh, to think about how processes of understanding of uh, experience and also narrating knowledge and the gleaning of knowledge can be replicated as a process on the page through reading. Um, it's an extraordinary ambitious work um, but one that very much is worth it um, and she is a, a real writer to both, both relish and champion but also to look out for and um, she's written collections of poetry as I say short stories. Um, this is of her work that I've, I've read, the most hybrid form, um, and as I say, beautifully designed by Guillemot Press and, and really something to, to savour. So that's And What If We Were All Allowed to Disappear um, by Tanya Hirschman. That sounds amazing. I'm going to recommend something very different from both of those books, which is The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. This is the first book in her incredibly acclaimed Broken Earth trilogy. I don't know if you have heard of it. No. Um, yes. So I would describe it as a kind of mix of science fiction and fantasy, um, both of which I know, as you know, are not usually my genre. I'm so impressed with you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it came, it came highly recommended by a number of people, including my mom whose taste I trust very much. So I decided to try it while I was on holiday. And to sort of give the setup, the series is set in a completely other world, which is called The Stillness, um, which is a kind of ironic title for this world because it's one continent that is just always moving geologically in some way, you know, volcanoes and earthquakes, and the, the earth never stops moving. And consequently, society there is structured around the geological instability of the earth, and especially the the sort of inevitable coming of these things called fifth seasons, where the world breaks down because of a massive geological event, a kind of huge volcanic explosion or an earthquake or something like that. And the world becomes kind of almost uninhabitable and they have to wait until things return to normal. It also has 
these people called, and this is, I am not entirely sure how to pronounce this, called origins, I think they're called, who are humans who are born with the power to shape and respond to the earth, but who also can be very dangerous because they can't always control their powers. And the start of this book is the start of a new fifth season, um, one that the book kind of tells us will be the very end of the stillness. It took me a while to get into it. There's a lot of jargon to process, speaking of words and jargon. And I wouldn't say that world building is my like favorite feature of fiction. I think that's sometimes why I don't always read science fiction or fantasy. But once the world was built, I got really into it. She's an amazing writer. It's so inventive. I just love this concept of like, you know, human emotions being connected to shaping the earth and this earth that's always moving. And she manages to tackle a number of issues like slavery and climate change through this alternate world in this really astonishing way. And I'm going to read the rest of the trilogy. So I would really recommend it. That sounds really fabulous. Really, really fabulous. Like, like, I think you would like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of of that kind of stuff, big time. It makes me think of Ursula K. Le Guin. Yes, mm. I. She very much feels like she's in, in writing in that tradition, using fantasy and and science fiction to explore the possibilities of humanity. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded. It's really when we start kind of. <laughs> we start using that as kind of a self-help manual in kind of a couple of years it's like how do they get out how do they survive yeah. <laughs> okay thank you so much guys yeah thanks ellie that was really great that's all the time we have for today thanks to our interviewee ellie williams and to eddie knight for editing and music Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We will be back in a couple of weeks with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>